The Lean Braves reporting for duty, bringing you physical and health education with a noble purpose. You're listening to the Lean Braves radio show at theleanbraves.com. We are Avengers of Health. Hold on to those moronic smartphones. Today we're getting into technology. Welcome, Braves. I'm Ron Jones, and Michael Campy is back again for another show. We're the Lean Braves, and our topic today is Revolt Against Mechanism. It is November 23rd, 2020. Michael, welcome back. Today's show is going to be a rocker. <laughs> Hello, Michael. Thanks, Ron. Yeah. Hey, I'm there. I'm here. Sorry. What, what you got, COVID on me or something? I mean... <laughs> I did. I, I, I've been spreading it around. All right. Well, you... you it kind of had um, like black history in my mind because I just finished reading uh, like a major um, black history book last a uh, couple days ago, as you know. But you wanted to talk about technology today. And so I went back on my archive collection and I've got some amazing resources that most people have never even heard about. And I think it's going to play right into the issues we're facing uh, in 2020 and looking into 2021, where there's so much emphasis put on the machine, the machine mm-hmm. representative of technology, especially coming out of education, where everything is like online, Zoom, and it's like the greatest thing. But we're seeing some problems. Uh, yes, we are. And yeah. they foreshadowed this back a hundred years ago. So I'm going to talk. I'm going to read something out of a book on conformity and conversation art, and this book was actually written a little bit later. It was written in 1934. the The title of this book is "The Challenge of Leisure" by Arthur Newton Pack, and he graduated from the Harvard Business School in 1915. He was Tucson, Arizona's Man of the Year in 1952. And you might be asking, if you're listening, well, what the hell does leisure have to do with technology? Well, it has a lot to do with it. And as I was talking to Michael before the show, this concept of leisure, in other words, our free time, because the machine and the industrial technology advancements gave man free time that they'd never had before because of the machine doing so much of the work for us. And there was extremely high levels of concern that people were not going to be able to handle the free time wisely, and then it could create a a social disaster. So that is the stage being set. And Michael, I'm going to ask you to be patient for a moment, but I know you'll have plenty to say when I finish this little passage. Allow me to practice my oral reading skills as an English teacher. Rock on. Conformity has its roots deep in machine-age standardization, but its greatest growth was attained during the late prosperity. It was the watchword of that intense inflationary period that followed shortly after the Great War and extended until almost 1930. Then, when everything began to crack and the millions of uniformly adolescent minds found themselves unable to cope with disaster, the nation sent up a cry for help and sought frantically for a Moses. But where were the thought, the mentality, and the leadership that the people so sorely needed? True, 
there were only a few who could suggest and lead to, a few who possessed constructive ideas, but they were so pitifully, so inadequately few. The need for dictatorship and the willingness to accept it docilely are the strongest possible evidences of mass weakness and general mental incompetence and the stullification of really constructive thought and executive ability. These are the outgrowth of artificially drugged minds rendered incapable of social vision because they are never called upon to develop anything more than compliance and are never trained to any destiny higher than that of the insentient cogs in a machine. Without a commensurate standard of thinking, the standard of living is but an empty shell supported by a dangerous, vicious cycle of routine operations and bound to collapse at a breath. Human standards in their truest sense are not to be measured by the yardstick of so many automobiles or radios per capita or even by the average wages of our workers. Human standards have to do with spiritual things and should by all means be much higher today than it was before when we had when we had the benefit of mechanical exchange of thoughts so ready at hand. Hold on a minute. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Okay. Let me repeat Uh-oh. this. Okay, human standards have to do with spiritual things and must be measured in those terms or not at all. The poverty of our national standard of thinking is well illustrated in the almost complete loss of the art of conversation. Good conversation is truly an art, requiring its devotees to practice a long list of social virtues, patience, understanding, sympathy, tolerance, intelligence, and demanding, as do all other refinements of civilization, constant exercise to prevent its loss. Good conversation is hard to find nowadays, only a little less hard than during the great prosperity period preceding the Depression. For conversation seems to have fallen into the category of hand labor and has been displaced by the machines that do our talking for us. It has become irrelevant, spread thinly and superficially over a variety of topics, and is not necessarily listened to any more than the radio, which is its mechanical substitute." That was 1934. 1934. 1934. And what, you know, and I'll I'll be reading and we'll be discussing some other passages here on the show today, but the the foreshadowing, the caution, the the wisdom projecting forward and the warnings a hundred years ago are absolutely breathtaking. What struck me in this passage was the warning about and I'll quote again, the need for dictatorship and the willingness to accept it docilely are the strongest possible evidences of mass weakness, of general mental incompetence, and the stullification of really constructive thought and executive ability. And, you know, we've talked many times, Michael, about the the lack of ability today with people to have a conversation and even disagree and have a decent argument. And that was written 50 years before Neil Postman wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death. Yes, that's another great book. Um, in fact, I... Basically, 
somewhat addressing the same sort of issue, the, the glut of information, the decontextualization of information, and what he called the information action ratio, where prior to mass communications, if you got some information, you could probably act on it almost immediately. You know, but after mass communications were implemented, then you would find out, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and find out that there was a fire in an apartment building in Brooklyn and you lived in San Francisco. It wouldn't matter. Right, because it, you're you're being fed with stuff that doesn't, it's clouding your everyday task and uh, mm-hmm. priorities, basically. I was thinking today, and, and with all our smartphone technology, we're in an instant, we can post something and have it go viral in a few minutes, how absolutely lost we are with knowing what is going on. Like... Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Sweden. Okay, well, Sweden, you know, didn't do this and they did this, and now they have the lowest rates of COVID in the country. No, no, they have the highest rates of COVID in, in Europe. And so we're, we're having this debate back and forth, and there's sources for each side, and we're sitting here in the United States, and we really don't have a clue what's going on. And it's like, it, it just, it's mind-boggling to me that we have access to instantaneous information, and yet we still don't understand what's going on. And I just wonder, I'm questioning progress at this point. And this is... As well you should. This is, this is the danger of putting your emphasis into the machine. In fact, one of the authors, they wrote about this, this psyche that develops around machinery thought, where everything is based, our, our vernacular, our, our conversations, our way of thinking is, is machine-like in terms of problem and solution. You know, it becomes very mechanical, uh, mechanized in our, just our thought processes. And it, 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 it sucks the spirituality out of, of the human being. Um, and this is, this is exactly what's happened in, in so many ways. And it's been talked about. It's been so talked about. And, I mean, um, in addition to that piece that you just read, that I think I mentioned to you an author by the name of Lewis Mumford, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called Techniques and Civilization. And it was about machines mm-hmm. and how they impacted our lives. And um, I, in doing some research for a, a little book that I wrote, um, I found out that Despite claims to the contrary, medieval serfs had more free time than modern Americans. Hmm. They worked fewer hours. They spent time doing more important things like drinking and enjoying each other's company. Um, yeah, for a group of people who claim to have machines that will take the, the pressure off, were, I mean... How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, sorry, I didn't get back to you. I was, I've been really busy. Well, and it's this is one of the things that's come out, especially with smartphones, is that we never leave our work behind. Like we're, we're taking a crap in the toilet and we're trying to answer our email or something, you know, and we're going on vacation and you're still getting texts from your boss or whatever. And so mm-hmm. it, you don't get um, the proper leisure, and actually, people know me as a PE expert or you know historian of PE. My real gig, I mean, the most important thing I can do is teach people about leisure at this point because it it is the linchpin of society. That mm-hmm. is the determinant factor in how 
what the longevity of your people will be in your nation is how you spend your leisure time. And mm-hmm. I'm here to tell everyone listening that it we are in the danger zone. We are beyond the danger zone just based off how Americans spend their leisure time. It's awful because it's oftentimes just mindless amusement. And I think I, I oftentimes think about this as a pie. You know, mm-hmm. there's a slice of pie, you know, for many different things throughout our day. You know, working, you know, going to the grocery store, family, whatever. And there should be a small slice, I think, for just mindless amusements. I think it has its place. Mm-hmm. But if you make half the pie mindless amusements, we're really in a dangerous spot. And and this yeah. is history talking. I'm just speaking for history. I'm relaying the mm-hmm. message. Remember, I'm the messenger. This I'm going to read a passage called—it's uh, from a booklet called Leisure, a National Issue. Planning for the Leisure of a Democratic People. It's by Edward uh, Lindman, who is a very big name in, in uh, recreation leisure. And this book came out of the Library of United, University of Texas. And, of course, many of my books have been discarded. But I picked them up. 1939. And uh, Lindman was professor of social philosophy at the New York School of Social Work. Consulting Director, Division of Recreation, Work Progress, Work Progress Administration. So he worked directly with the U.S. government um, at the end of the Depression era. And this is something he wrote on technology. So let's, let's sit back and think about this reflectively. Wherever technology intervenes, human consciousness must expand. Otherwise, as Horace Mann foresaw a century ago, we shall perish by the very instruments prepared for our happiness. Those who do not recognize this fact will continue to have difficulty in adapting themselves to the concept of a planned society. They will be confused about many features of modern life, and especially about the nature of freedom in a technological world. For those of you that don't know Horace Mann, he was a big thought leader in education. And philosophy, and so this was written in thirty nine, and they were citing Horace Mann saying this uh, a century ago. We shall perish by the very instruments prepared for our happiness. Now this is profound. This is written in thirty nine, quoting him a hundred years earlier. You were one of the people. Well, actually, you were the person that put on my radar, Michael. That oftentimes. Technology is created to solve the problems of the previous technology. Mm-hmm. It's like a dog when, chasing the proverbial tail, man. And when traced back, we sometimes, or most of the time, find that the t- technology was unnecessary in the first place. Well, you know, as you as we look around mm-hmm. at all the technology, I have to agree that a lot of it, you know, we've gotten used to it, but it doesn't mean that it's necessary. Um. And we used to get by just fine, and we're old enough to have been raised before the smartphone. But, you know, if you mm-hmm. talk to somebody 10 or 15 years old and say, well, you're not going to be able to have your phone, they'd probably have a nervous breakdown. Is you this know, a good place for the 10-year-old story? Yes, please interject. Okay, yeah, I used to do the—well, uh, you know this, but for the listening audience, I did the dryland programming for the uh, swim and dive teams. Oh, this is a good story, everyone. <laughs> um, and I asked a 10-year-old once, one of the divers, 
um, what do you think of Twitter and Facebook? And he looked at me and he said, in my opinion, nothing has done more to damage the quality of discourse than Twitter and Facebook. I'm and this was a 10-year-old. I'm thinking he maybe read that uh, passage that we started the show with. <laughs> it's entirely possible he because was a smart the, kid. The art of conversation, I would <clears throat> argue today, in November of 2020, has been woefully lost. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at what's happening, whether it's a protest, rioting, the the mainstream news media, the alternative news media, I mean, it's very difficult to get people on and just have a conversation and a friendly argument and agree to disagree mm-hmm. without screaming and yelling and and uh, snapping. And I, I, I think, in view of everything that we've been through this year, I think people have earned the right to snap a little bit. I snapped mm-hmm. a little bit at the dentist office today because I went in there to get a, a, my teeth cleaned and they pointed the, the therm, thermo gun at my forehead. And I have a thing about not having that at my pineal gland. And plus, mm-hmm. just from a... From a spirituality standpoint, it's it's the third eye area that's very revered by certain cultures and religions. You know, the Hindu, mm-hmm. Jewish, Catholics, and and um, and others throughout history. So I'm thinking they probably know something about that. And then, having studied the Nazi extermination of Jews, and in terms of the ballistic specifics of gun placement and angles and trajectory, and so I'm just like I'm a little bit freaked out. But I I said no, you know, take my wrist. And they said, well. We have to do the forehead, and I said a few um, words, <laughs> and I, I immediately ejected myself and refused the service because. Um, mm-hmm. And so I snapped a little bit. I actually did snap a little bit, um, and it's it's well, been a I stressful year. When I spent thirty minutes waiting on voicemail um, for a question that could have been answered in less than five seconds by an actual person, mm. and that's viewed as an improvement. Right, and you know, it, it's there's there's no spiritual mojo in uh, an automated machine talking to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, we've we and if if nothing else, like one of the, you know, you go back to the Chinese definition of uh, of um, chaos is opportunity. You know, there I think that's the loose translation of that. And so the mm-hmm. opportunity coming out of this chaotic year we're having is that. We should be recognizing the importance of human interaction face to face in mm-hmm. the same room or at the same park outside if you want to be socially distant a little bit. But it's we 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 really aren't going to do well continuing to exist this way. It's uh, it's making people literally crazy. Um, yes. And you know, we as English people, we we've read uh, so much in literature about you know the isolated person in nature, and and we we also know enough about some of these authors to know that they had a lot of mental issues. So there are dangers with with that social isolation and the the whole solitary um, life. Um, I'm going to read something from 1926. This is on the dangers of excess leisure without proper skill development because of machinery. So one of the things that they were talking about 100 or so years ago was as the machines came in, the need for the hand skills or the skills of the worker decreased. And those skills required to be a craftsman are really, really important for brain health, 
and also for social well-being. And I want to really emphasize this. So especially the parents, if you have children and you have an opportunity to teach your children how to do woodworking and pottery and mechanical work, whether you're restoring an old car or you know, maybe welding or something like that, please encourage them because the, the hand skill part of that is, is critical to development of the brain. So I'll read this little passage here. I thought this was interesting. Now, this is called the threat of leisure because remember the thought of the day was that um, this excess of leisure was really dangerous because Americans were never really taught how to use leisure. And people might ask, well, why why is that when, you know, in Europe they seem to have a better idea of how to use their leisure time with vacations and things like this? Well, when the when the Euro rejects came over to this country, there was a whole country of forest to clear and infrastructure to build and industrial revolution. We were working too much to have leisure, right? And all of a sudden, after the industrial revolution kicked in, then we have all this leisure dumped in our laps, and we never had trained our children in school. Um, how to use leisure. And by the way, it's written, the most important objective of education is not to teach people how to get a job. It's to teach the children how to use their leisure time. Because if you know how to use your leisure time wisely, you'll be the best worker. You'll be the best employee. You'll be the best employer. You'll be the best military person. You'll be the best citizen. But if you don't know how to use your leisure time wisely, and this goes back to ancient Greece, you're pretty much done as a person, and as a nation. And on that note, the possession... Oh, uh, oh let, let me qualify this. You have a comment? Okay. Uh, well, I just wanted to say, that, uh, but I, I can fit it in at the end. Go ahead. Okay. This is called... The, the, the book is The Threat of Leisure by George Barton Cutton. And Cutton was actually a pretty big name in, uh, in uh, leisure and recreation. He was the president of Colgate University. And this book was published... Uh, in 1926, and he wrote this, The possession of surplus time in the use of which one has not been trained is far more dangerous than surplus money under the same conditions. So think about that. You know, this, this he was written in 1926, so this is an era of extreme prosperity before the Depression. He's He's weighting money versus time here and the proper use of time. I'll read it again. It's a very short quote. The possession of surplus time in the use of which one has not been trained is far more dangerous than surplus money under the same conditions. So we can have extra money and not know what to do with it, and he doesn't think that's as dangerous as having extra time and not knowing what to do with it. Um, this actually gets into uh, the research I've done on juvenile delinquency, but it has a lot to do with just the American culture and how repulsive it is to people that have a higher level of leisure um, training in school, and culturally they, they know how to use leisure. Like, you know, in Europe there, there are countries that have like six weeks of, you know, mandated vacation for everyone working, mm-hmm. um, or even longer. And it, well, what I think a lot of people don't understand is they confuse the concept of busyness with being productive. They confuse the cause, the, the, the concept of productivity which, with being productive, and it's not. Um, productivity, and uh, there's a guy named Rand Prier who writes, wrote that productivity is the new 
busy. Mm-hmm. It's a way to be busy. And like you're saying about not knowing what to do with leisure time. Um, I need around me a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I'm usually, I need probably anywhere from one to three hours in the morning before I'm capable of going out and dealing with the outside world. Yeah. But I'm not just sitting around. Um, it's, uh, there was a point there somewhere. It seems to have been lost. Well, it, it, rhetoric. it reminds me of um, being busy to be busy. You know, that's what I call it. Some people are just oh, oh, chronically oh. busy, was, you know. Sorry, I just remembered it. Um, it was a, uh, a group of uh, researchers from IBM uh-huh. who were sent over to France to find out why their French offices were so much more productive than their American offices. And after watching the people work in the American offices, they're constantly busy from the moment they showed up to the moment they left, sometimes staying late mm-hmm. so they could still be busy. They went over to France, and they showed up bright and early, and nobody was there. <laughs> About 9 o'clock or so, people started rolling in, and they got to work. About, uh, you know, right around lunchtime, they all stopped. Um, they went and had anywhere from an hour to two hours for lunch. They came back, they did some more work, and then when they left around 4, 4.30, they were done for the day. And they were shocked. They said, how, how could you get anything done? They said, well, because here, when we're at work, we're at work. Um, and when we're not, we're not. So when we come in here, the hours we spend working, we actually spend them working, not carrying around pieces of paper to look like we're working. You know, Americans grind too much. Oh, you know, yeah. and we we think we think more is better on the the work ethic thing. And I've been as guilty of that as anyone. And, and one of the things I've really struggled with as I got into leisure was because on the surface, leisure is your free time, and you're in the wood you're in the wood shop building a table, and you're you know people that know me, and they're like, I'm always building stuff with you know little things, and I'm doing little projects. Mm-hmm. And my daughter's like, Dad, you're always busy doing stuff. But at the deeper level of leisure. You mm-hmm. really have to stop doing a bunch of stuff, and you have to have space. And I did a little Facebook post yesterday because I took some space after a, an important meeting that I had with a, a colleague of mine, and mm-hmm. I went down to the beach with one stick, and I gave myself time just to play with the stick and be creative. And I started creating because I had space, and I was open to trying different things, and I didn't have an agenda really, so I'm just going to play around in the surf with my stick. Mm-hmm. And I, because that space opened up, the creativity come, came out, and I was putting new quality into movements that I've been rehearsing and practicing thousands of repetitions over the last, like, five years. And I'll do a video on that, and I'll explain what happened. But, mm-hmm. you know, I if we do this right in 2020, and we come out of this, if we can come out of this at all, there should be an explosion of creativity if people did their leisure time properly, meaning they should have been reading things they didn't normally have time to read. They should also have been just relaxing and chilling out and just resting a little bit instead of running off and spending two hours on the freeway. Because for me, like my commute time is is like an hour each way, you know, the last couple years. And so uh-huh. that's a lot of extra time to read and sit and think. Uh-huh. And it's really critical. So this, anyway, this is a this is a big uh, 
a very big concept, and, and I'm going to read another passage here in The Thread of Leisure, the same book. All right. Undoubtedly, the factory system does dull interest in work, for what each one does seems not worth doing in itself to a full-grown man. His work is planned for him, so there is no need of initiative. Some machines are made as nearly as, nearly as possible foolproof. So there is no need of skill. Reasoning is a superfluous power, and even consciousness on a high plane is hardly required in the routine work of some task. There is no spirit of loyalty to a machine, and no need of exertion, for if this job is lost, another one can be found, and even if a new machine is to be used, the work can be learned in a few days. Now, this would not be true of some of the super high-tech coding and things like that, but in terms of just the assembly line process, you know, this book was written in 1926, they were were recognizing that this monotony of, uh, we we could apply this today to like um, data, data management people, they just plug in the same types of numbers day in, day out, decade after decade, over and over and over and over, there's no, there's no spirit to it. And, and this is where it gets really interesting, because in this whole study of leisure, hobbies were considered essential to mental stability and sanity, meaning if you didn't have a hobby to do when you got home, you were literally going to lose your mind, because the jobs that most people have in the modern era suck the holy life and soul right out of them. That's what they were well, writing about. Plato was writing about that. Who was? Plato. Ah, well, see, it's there's a, <laughs> in the dialogues of Plato. He said it was amazing to him that men should spend their lives trying to live in a state nearly resembling death, mm-hmm. and then repine when the actual event occurs. Yes, Jack Elaine used to talk about that. He like we spent so. He said we work ourselves to death trying to live, and then and then I don't, I forget how he put it, but he had it on a like a little poster card or something that I've got someplace. Mm -hmm. Here's another quote a little later on in the same book, The Thread of Leisure. The result of our unlimited, unorganized, unled, and uncontrolled leisure is the greatest danger to which any nation was ever exposed. Meaning it's just kind of chaotic and there's no—I mean, if you get back into leisure, by definition in the Greek era, it, it, it means school. And it, mm-hmm. it, it means a school was space to learn at your own pace. It wasn't a rush, like, check off the standards and the boxes type of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so leisure relates to learning. So my question when I do keynote presentations and I consult with different groups is, what are you learning in your leisure time? And usually that's the point of crickets chirping, if that. Mm-hmm. Because when people start looking around the room thinking about how they spend their leisure time and they're not learning anything, really. Mm-hmm. They're, they're passively amused, of course, but um, that's, there was, um, that's different. I think it was Lewis Carroll who wrote a piece, and it, uh, it, uh, our, my English teacher at Santa Monica College read this to us. Mm-hmm. And it opens up with facts, facts. Facts, facts, we must fill their heads with facts. <laughs> and he, he points to, you know, our textbook and so 
said, are those not facts? And then he goes on to describe the room in which these children were being taught, and it was a mirror image of the room we were all sitting in. Which was 100 years later or whatever, right? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, this was in the early 2000s, so Mm -hmm. however long ago it was, Lewis Carroll wrote that. But, um, well, this, this may be a good time to put in a plug for my book called Stop Doing So Much Shit. <laughs> the Ultimate Guide to Becoming the Slacker You Were Born to Be. Well, this will, this will bring up the, the title for my next book. Actually, I'm going to read one quote, and then I'll get into this one. The, a Guide to Civilized Loafing by H.A. Overstreet. And that'll be a nice lead, right Michael. Yes. This book um, is called The Nemesis of Mediocrity. It was written by Ralph Adams Cram, C-R-A-M. And this book is a little bit older. And it was written in 1917. And I'm, I'm thrilled to let everyone know that I'm holding the real books in my hands. And they're, they're real editions. They're not reprints. These are the authentic books um, with the smells and the yellow pages and, you know, the, mm-hmm. whole, the whole enchilada here. I'm going to read one sentence out of this book, The Nemesis of Me- Mediocrity by Cram. Quote, Inch by inch, the valleys are being filled and the mountains brought low. And as I look about technology and all these things that are happening and people waving the flag of the machine and technology, as someone that studies the history of culture and what built the greatest nations in civilization, I see a lot of what's happening is that the valleys are being filled as the high, elevated mountains are just brought lower. There used to be this thing mm-hmm. called uh, American exceptionalism. I think we've talked about that before, Michael. Yeah. In fact, you recommended uh, that book to me that I just got, The End of American Exceptionalism. Is that the title? Uh, Limits of Power. Limits of Power. The End of American Exceptionalism. Right. And we, we, and, Andrew Basovich. And I've got it. I haven't read it yet. And, you know, yeah. you, you can look back. I mean, Amer- the American uh, inventions, I mean, it's been written that the reason we were able to do so many magnificent things is because we were just a bunch of mongrels, you know, and we were free thinkers, and we we thought outside the box. We didn't have that hierarchy of uh, of the caste system that they did in some other countries. And so that, that has served us really, really well. Mm-hmm. But— over time, we've I think we've really digressed, and we've we've lost that strong middle class. Open, you know. Uh, Hoffer wrote a lot about the the creativity of the middle class, the average everyday working American person. Mm-hmm. You know, he really, really, really believes strongly in that and that ability. Um, I think a lot has changed since he died in the eighties, and I don't feel as strongly about that capability anymore when I look around and. Mm-hmm. And just try to have a conversation with somebody. This book is called A Guide to Civilized Loafing, and it's written by H.A. Overstreet, who is a major, major player uh, in his era. And uh, let's see, this book was written in 1934. And let me read this one and see. Ah, yes. Where ugliness has penetrated into the souls of people, Free hours are powerless to wipe them clean. So 
we've got these souls are, that are adulterated and, and trashed, and all that extra time won't cleanse that and, and to be kind of machine-like in the description, fix the problem, right? Mm-hmm. The problem, if you want to have the Western machine mentality way of describing it, problem and solution, is that we don't teach our children how to use their leisure time in school as the main objective of education today, K-12. They grow up not having a clue what to do with their leisure time. They think it's money, job, stuff. And that is a vicious cycle that leads us into the valleys that are filling up as the high mm-hmm. mountaintops erode. That's my pontificated explanation. That was right pontificated, too. Yeah, so... It's, it's just, I mean, the whole obsession with technological progress, I mean, we apply it to almost everything. Oh, it's a problem. We can solve it with technology. We can solve this problem with technology and that problem with technology, but all it does is, like we've mentioned, create more problems. And it creates a lot of unhappiness. You know, we we can look around at our teens today and young people and see that the suicide rates are much higher, the depression is mm-hmm. much higher, um, mm-hmm. the body damaging uh, is much higher that they do to themselves, and, and they've grown up with smartphones and connected to the whole world and, quote-unquote, social, but mm-hmm. they're alone, you know? And I think yeah. this this quote um, by Overstreet, a guide to civilized loafing, will will actually play right into this um, the conversation we just had. Quote: The mechanisms which, in our ingenuity, we have achieved are sometimes spoken of disparagingly, as if their will was to enslave us. We are bidden at times to have done with them and return to a simple life. A mechanism which ha- which is imposed upon us against our will does indeed make for our unhappiness, but a mechanism freely and intelligently used to ends that we ourselves set for ourselves can be a very real emancipator of our powers and a generator of happiness. And and to to encapsulate this, it was written that. As we got into the machine age, the machine should be our slave. We should not be a slave to the machine. And that's a pretty close paraphrase to other passages that I've read. And as I look around today, a hundred years later, hundred plus years later, I see people are absolutely enslaved to the smartphone. Mm-hmm. That smartphone controls their whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, from the moment they wake up in the morning uh, into the the last few moments they go to bed, they've got the phone in their hand and they're constantly checking. And I've been guilty of that too. I must say that as I got into researching leisure, technology, the machine, it really was a proverbial bitch slap that knocked me right off the chair and I had to pay attention to that. And now when I go too far one way, I, I know that I'm really screwing up. Well, I think the the smartphone specifically is like the bastard stepchild of what I call the day planner people. Mm-hmm. And they, you remember those books, right? The day planners. Oh yeah, yeah. They had places for notes and places for appointments and places for phone numbers and all these things. And I, you know, I knew people that actually say, "Oh fuck, I lost my day planner. I'm fucked. I have no idea." And they would go all to pieces. And it's the same people now that say that about their phones. Right. <clears throat> When I went to um, 
start a new bank account. The lady was quite shocked that all the information I needed to start the account I had readily available. <clears throat> I didn't have to look at my phone to give her a phone number. I didn't have to uh, look up my social security number. I didn't have to look up my driver's license number. I could just recite them right, right to her, right off the top of my head, because it's it's in my head. Well, use it or lose it. You know, memorization is a skill, and mm-hmm. we don't practice that anymore. We just put everything into a machine. You know, I work with Erwan Lacour, the the founder of MoveNet, um, a couple different times, and I got to know him a little bit. But uh, we uh-huh. we're doing a. Uh, he had a workshop in Santa Monica a few years ago, and it was an all-day thing. And he, I think there was like 17 people in the group. Uh-huh. We're out on the beach in Santa. It was really cool. Like, I, I really enjoyed the experience, and, you know, and I, I I think I was doing a little photography for him, you know, that weekend. And there was a trade show that week, too. And mm-hmm. um, as people went around, they introduced themselves. He he just kind of nodded and looked at him, and, and, and it went all the way around the circle. And then he started at the beginning, and he, he recited every single person's name in the group. Mm-hmm. And he gave us a little lecture. And it was kind of a proverbial bitch slap again. He goes, you know, people go into the parking structure and they've got to take a, a photo with their phone of the number of the stall that they're parked in or the floor mm-hmm. so they can remember how to get back to your car, their car. He goes, you don't need to do that. He goes, mm-hmm. it's making your brains <clears throat> weak. That was basically his message. And I'm like, oh my God, I've done the exact same thing. I... <laughs> Well, do you know who Harry? Do you know who Harry Lorraine is? No, I don't. Harry Lorraine was a guy that was. Um, it was kind of like a, a stage show that he did, actually. Who could remember everything? Oh, wow, that's interesting. And he wrote several books on it. Um, and one of the things that he used to do is someone would put a bunch of objects on a tray, and he would look at it and they'd cover it with a cloth. Mm-hmm. And then he would just tell them. Okay, there's this, 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 you know, anywhere up to like 25 objects. Wow, that's a lot of objects. And with just a glimpse, he could remember all of them. Wow, that's high-level stuff. And he described that as just a, making connections. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he said if there's a, a, a key, uh, a coin, a match, a, you know, a, a grape, don't look for individual objects that look for something to connect the objects. Like an anchor, you know, a, a hook. If right, you will. right. But, you know, they're like a, a, a grape stuck on the end of a match and whatever you can do to connect those things. And I used to do that with people when they were would readily forget my name, which is forgettable, to be sure. But I would, they'd say, oh, well, hi, I'm Dave. And I would take him by the shoulders and look him in the eye and say, and I'm Michael, and you're never going to fucking forget that. <laughs> and, and they wouldn't. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to admit my weakness in, in this area. I I hate those memory-type drills. I just loathe <clears throat> them, and I'm not good at them. Uh, now, I do, you know, obviously I have developed some expertise for, you know, the history of PE and culture and all that stuff. And I read mm-hmm. extensively. So I'm going to give myself some props for that. But a lot of that, uh, you know, just the memorization of things like that, I've really struggled with, especially names with people. But like, if I was going to meet you for the first time, and you know, because you just bought an RV, it's like, well, campy, okay, camper, he's got a big RV like a camper, I, I try to remember your name, like, so that's kind of what mm-hmm. we're talking about, if you're not sure. Yeah, and another thing about that is um, 
And we will, I believe, often refer to a guy named Chip Conrad from Body Tribe in Sacramento because he's between him and Dan John, they've thought about everything. Yep, one of the better, um, one of the better people around. Chip Conrad calls what most people do to exercise adulticizing, and I think it was a, actually a Bonnie Pruden term. Yeah, she ha- she was great at coming up with little catchy terms and phrases like that. And the idea is that we make everything a chore. Right. I mean, when I, I had a German teacher who said the best way to learn German is to learn German like a little kid learns German, or to learn any language. Like if you see the word for tree, what a little kid is going to do is say that word over and over and over and over again until he recognizes the connection between the word and the tree. Yeah. What an adult is going to do is try to remember the word. Hmm. Not the representation, but the word itself, and that's going to that's going to stifle the learning process. I had a lady that I worked with at UCLA um, who could not remember. I think I've told you the story. Couldn't remember from second to second what it was I'd asked her to do. Right. And so I assigned her some homework. I said, just every morning when you get up, pick out your address book and memorize one of your friend's phone numbers. And within weeks, she was doing much better. That's really interesting. You know, back in the day, we we would memorize our friends' phone numbers and our family phone numbers, you know, mm-hmm. and that that was just a given. And it was seven digits. I mean, usually the area code wasn't a big issue in those mm-hmm. days. But um, you know, now, like, if you ask me what my parents' cell phone is, I'd have to look at my phone. Now, right. But so yeah, that that association, and and I think to bring this into the play aspects because you know Americans are we've talked about grinding it out and we just think more work mm-hmm. the better and it, it ends up ruining us there's a playfulness in that there's a playfulness for me like well wh- Michael you know campy like how, oh he bought a camper it's like he, and he's kind of campy at times so like he's kind of corny campy mm-hmm. and, and Michael he's he's he reads a lot it's like Michelangelo you know these are the things floating around in my mind you know um, for a way to remember your name um, but, or you can just picture me grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, my name is Michael, and you're never going to fucking forget it. And scaring the holy shit out of me. Because <laughs> if you haven't seen Michael, he's very tall and a very rather large man. <laughs> so my, one of my all-time favorite reads is, is Lawrence P. Jacks. He was a uh, philosophy professor from the United Kingdom at Oxford. And he wrote a book called The Revolt Against Mechanism. He actually wrote a lot of books. Uh, the Education of the Whole Man is one of my top reads of all time, so I highly recommend L.P. Jacks. He came over here more than once, and he would meet uh, with you know political leaders in D.C., including the president at the time. I think it was Hoover he met with. Um, this book came from the, the uh, Hebert Lectures in 1933, the book is called The Revolt Against Mechanism, and this book uh, was written in 1934. And I'm going to read a couple passages. And basically the gist of this book is uh, we Americans, we reduce life to the mechanical thought of philosophy of, of a mere problem-solution relationship. You know, So he, he was cautioning us on the losing the spirit of things. Quote, As our knowledge of the parts increases— the secret of the whole seems to retire into a deeper darkness. And so he talked about, in the education of the whole man, educating the whole person. 
and not putting knowledge into these silos. And if you look at education today, that's exactly what we've done. We have the math silo. We have the science silo. We have the, the STEM thing, right? Yes, we have the STEM, the, you know, science, technology, English, math. And, and now some people have added the arts, thank God, because history says without the arts, you're done, right? And so mm-hmm. this is what he's warning us about. As we get to know more about the parts and we get anally retentive on, on the, all the little intricacies and the specialties, we lose sight of the whole. Now, people might be asking today, Michael, well, these guys are supposed to be PE health fitness guys. What are they talking about culture and, and the Greeks? and all? Because it's, we're really talking about societal health. And Michael mm-hmm. and I have had these conversations leading up to this series of podcasts that we've started to do this fall that we really believe that this is a deeper state of health we're talking about that goes way beyond talking about indie clubs and dumbbells and, and Olympic bars and protocols, you know, and biomechanics. I mean, we're happy to have that discussion at times, but we feel this is much more important. And so and we will be happy to offer a cultural fitness certification for your club or organization. Cultur- <laughs> cultural <laughs> fitness brand. There you go. So this this came up when I was going through my formal education and certifications and all that. You know, and if you look at medicine, it's the same way. They want you to specialize in something. And I remember telling my graduate advisor, who was pressuring me to get into a specialty, I said, I want to be a specialist at being a generalist. Because I knew in my heart, for me to really help the most amount of people, yes, I have certain areas that I'm very, very strong in, but I needed to have a generalized approach, kind of like a general practitioner a physician, mm-hmm. the old family doctor. That's how I see myself as a wellness and movement coach teacher. You know, I, I know I have a pretty good breadth of knowledge, and then I have uh, some areas that I can go really, really deep on, but not mm-hmm. at the expense of blinding myself to the overall picture, or as uh, it's been talked about, I need to be able to soar up to a 30,000-foot view and look out over the vast horizon and, and have a read on it, and then drop back down under the clouds and get into it. Most people today in fitness cannot do that. If you talk to them about culture and the greater good of society and citizenship, they just look at you like you're from a different planet. They're, they're stuck mm-hmm. in some kind of specialization with the kettlebell, or now the latest is just the, it's all about the Indian club, or it's all about the mace, or it's like, it's not about the fucking tool. <laughs> it's about the philosophy behind the tool. And once you latch on to that big idea from history, your life will change. It's the philosophy that matters. That's why when you talk about Lost Sierra High PE, the, the motivation factor film that I made with Doug Orchard, their PE booklet was called Philosophy. It was called the philosophy of La Sierra. They talked about what was behind it. It's critically important. And the physical educators that I've studied for years were philosophers and artists, and they, were, they had depth. They just didn't talk about biomechanics. So this, this is what Jax is talking about. We can't get lost in the minutia part of this. I'll read another one from Jax. I love this guy. Is the long leisure that machinery is creating to be spent in amusements that are merely parasitic on the labor of other people. So he's he's saying, like, okay, we've, we've got this long leisure now that machinery created for us. 
And all we're doing is spending it on amusements that are parasitic on the labors of other people running the the carnivals and the movie houses and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about the the skills that are deprived from the worker um, the machine took away. Um, mm-hmm. Let me see. Here's I've highlighted another one. Uh, I think these developments, I think, might all be summed up in the simple formula, render unto mechanism the things that are mechanisms and unto life the things that are lives with an implied warning of disasters to ensure. And he goes on to say, um, which is that of subordination to the creative purpose of life, a world where life is dominated by mechanism is a world upside down. Reverse the relation and mechanism becomes not harmless merely, but indispensable. So again, it's like, how do you manipulate the technology and the machine? Because if you're a slave to it, you're your world is upside down. I would argue mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing today, is a world upside down. And I would agree. My last <laughs> quote from Jax, and then I'll own one more book after this. Whenever the attempt is made to impose the fixity of mechanism on the creativeness of spirit, revolt <clears throat> is certain sooner or later to follow. So let me read that again. This is a good predictor for today. Whenever the attempt is made to impose the fixity of mechanism on the creativeness of spirit, revolt is certain sooner or later to follow. And so we've got this mechanism that's that's been fixed upon us and crushed our, our creative spirit, and there's bound to be a revolt. That's, that's what he's forecasting as people lose their freaking minds. And they will, and they have. And they will, and they have. Now, this is a book called uh, Joseph Piper, P-I-E-P-E-R, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, with an introduction by T.S. Eliot. So I guess when you have T.S. Eliot writing your introduction, it must be important. And uh, this book was... That, of course, is assuming people know who T.S. Eliot is. Well, that's another thing. Uh, Copyright 1952, so this would be a little bit newer. And let's see what I've got here. So he talks about, um, oh, oh, here it is. Hang on, this is going to be a few sentences. Uh, Idleness. In the old sense of the word, so far from being synonymous with leisure is merely, is more nearly the inner prerequisite which renders leisure impossible. It might be described as the utter absence of leisure or the very opposite of leisure, Leisure is only possible when a man is at one with himself. Now, he's talking about true leisure here, not just mm-hmm. amusement. When he acquiesces—how do you pronounce it? It's A-C-Q-U-I-E-S-C-E-S. Acquiesce? Acquiesce. Yeah, when he acquiesces in his own being, whereas the essence of our sedia is the refusal to acquiesce in one's own being. Now, I had to look up acedia. Apparently, that is a despair from weakness, for those of us that don't know. A despair from weakness? A despair, an inner despair from your own weakness. It's Uh A-C-E-D-I-A. Idleness and the incapacity for leisure correspond with one another. Leisure is the contrary of both. And here's where it gets a little more clear and easy to understand. Leisure, it must be clearly understood, 
is a mental and spiritual attitude. It is not simply the result of external factors. It is not the inevitable result of spare time, a holiday, a weekend, or a vacation. It is, in the first place, an attitude of mind, a condition of the soul. And he goes on to say that leisure implies, in the first place, an attitude of non-activity, of inward calm, of silence. It means not being busy, but letting things happen. Leisure is a form of silence. Only the silent hear, and those who do not remain silent, do not hear. And they do not hear the soul's power to answer through that contemplative attitude. So this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the show when I went to the beach and just allowed the silence to basically give me some some ideas. And this is what I think you were talking about when you know you need one to three hours in the morning um, to think. Mm-hmm. Space to think. We're so busy, especially with uh, social media. I remember, I'm going to tell you a story. This is a great story. I went down to a, uh, one of my buddies as uh, a bodybuilder, or was, and I went down to a bodybuilding show, and uh, Philippe Till was with me. You know, our good friend Philippe, and mm-hmm. we're down at this big bodybuilding show, and we watched, we watched uh, Ruben um, do his competition. Yeah, Ruben. Yep, and uh, had a great time. It was fun, and uh, Philippe was dealing with somebody else. It was kind of a fairly well known in bodybuilding who was just he was a young guy, like probably twenty one, twenty two, and he was so possessed by his social media presence and having to post every single thing that he couldn't even have a a decent conversation with Philippe and I about some business arrangements that Philippe was trying to bring him into. And he was right there and wasn't noticing anything. And, you know, from a self-defense perspective, that's really dangerous. When you're in a situation, you don't know what's going on around you. You're you're a victim waiting to happen. And I, I see this a lot, predominantly more with younger people, but knowing what I know, I just felt sorry for him. And he, he had no idea what he was doing and demonstrating. But it was really tragic because he, he just he couldn't he couldn't be in the moment. And I, I'll tell you another story. Someone very famous in uh, the fitness industry. We're at a social event. I'll keep the names out of it to protect the guilty. Um, there were all these and you know the you know the real story, but I won't mention any names. Okay. There's all these people sitting around worshiping this guy, basically, and he's on his computer doing all the social media, oblivious to all these people that just loved and adored him and appreciated him. Um, and they were right there with him in the same location, and he was more concerned about somebody that he was never going to meet over in France or wherever. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this guy, and I knew at, I knew then— that it was over for him in terms of that that was a sweet spot in time that was going to be mm-hmm. vanitas and vanitas if if you haven't read into literature is it it means like nothing is going to be here forever it's all going to evaporate and vanish and i thought your sweet spot is vanitas because mm-hmm. you don't notice and you don't appreciate uh the moment and so i think that's what happens when we get too busy being busy and we don't understand classical leisure. These are the types of dangers that um, 
these books are, are trying to warn us about it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven books I read out of today. I'll um, type up the titles in the show notes. Yeah, in addition to Theodore Rozak's book, Technopoly, and Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And yeah, Amusing My... I, I actually pulled that book for the show, and then I forgot to bring it into my um, hmm. recording That's area okay, here. Another one, I think it's called, well, Technopoly, yeah. But, um, well, when Internet cafes first began to uh, rear their ugly heads, a friend of mine who's always been pretty much averse to technology of any kind, went into a cafe and saw somebody typing away at a computer, and he walked up to him and said, what you doing? And the guy turned and said, just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. And he finished typing his little thing, and they turned around and he says, oh, I'm talking to my friend. And he goes, well, I'll talk to you, and I'm right here. <laughs> and the guy just looked at him, and it was, he was appalled. He goes, what, he, he couldn't handle interaction right right with a real life person and that's become like the bane of the internet is the anonymity that people feel when they attack people right right i mean a lot of people would not say the things they think they can say on the internet if they were face to face with the person i think we're a lot more empathetic when we're face to face with people and we make a human connection i know i feel that way um mm-hmm. even even with my interactions and i try to you know, I do my best to be pretty rational and not mm-hmm. not be like just screaming and yelling at people online and going ballistic because I I just don't think that's that productive. Um, yeah, but well, I, I had an inter- in, I had an interaction with somebody here. Uh huh. Um, he was getting, and I've been informed in the recent past that the word aggro is not used very often anymore. But I'm going to go ahead and use it. Um, this guy was getting really aggro with me. Mm-hmm. He was getting kind of puffy, you know, the way guys do when they, they think they're going to scare you by puffing up. What was the context of the situation? Oh, I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> but I, I just looked at him as he got puffier and puffier and angrier and angrier, and when he finally shut his mouth, I said, having a bad day, pumpkin. <laughs> and it just took the wind out of his sails. He had no idea what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think in in closing and in, in to kind of paraphrase some of the authors here, they they recognize that technology is here. It's going to keep developing, and they're not saying to do away with technology. So for those of you who think that Michael Michael and I are too dated and to be you know valued, that's not what we're mm-hmm. saying. But we we know enough about history to carry on and and pay forward the warnings here. And I would argue that because we didn't listen to this wisdom 100 years ago, we got into a real tough spot here with technology. And technology is enabling us to speak to you today. So, I mean, I use technology all the time, so does Michael, and it's wonderful if we can keep in mind that it should be our slaves for the betterment Mm -hmm. and the elevation of culture. And if we're using it to manipulate hatred and just to ruin our nation, our culture, or the global economy, or whatever, I would argue we'd be better off without it. And I think in some ways, this is the skeptical part of it. Um, we were we were better off without the internet and without the smartphones. Well, that's just because you're an old curmudgeon. That's um, right. That's right. You know? We could... Um, actually, I think a really salient point was made by uh, Dave Foreman, who was the founder of Earth First. 
Mm-hmm. And they were interviewing him about technology. And they asked him if he was to use a human lifespan as a barometer as to where the technology was. He would say, oh, I'd say it's probably in its pre-teens. Hmm. And they said, uh, well, using that same barometer, where do you see humans' ability to cope with that technology? And he said, pre-embryonic. Yeah, I, th- I think that's quite profound, and I would, I would align with that. Um, yeah, I mean, we just don't have the capacity that's... to, well, it, you know, like, as all the paleo people say, it's like, oh, well, we haven't just, we haven't evolved physiologically beyond our paleo roots. Mm-hmm. And, um, there, you know, certain adaptations have taken place, but technology advances, like, by the second. Right, right. And there's no way we can adapt to that. It's kind of maddening, because you can never catch up with it. You know, mm-hmm. this is where you have to be really careful. It's it's like... Uh... I don't know, man. It's 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 dangerous. I don't know how else to say it. I I think um, we just have to be careful in, in how we how we manipulate it instead of it manipulating us. I think the smartphones, as as Doug Orchard said when we were in New York City in Rockefeller Plaza doing a uh, piece on physical education, classical PE. We had a global feed of ten million people, and he said on camera, "We're living." in the dark ages with smartphones. And I thought it was really a profound statement. And I've, I've quoted him many times because in so many ways, if you look at the behaviors of people, they're acting like, you know, a bunch of uh, prehistoric cavemen and with their behaviors, even though they have this, you know, mini computer in the palm of their hand, you know. It's, it's rather bizarre predicament. People have to remember, and I guess we're going to be closing up pretty quickly here, but um, is... From a historical perspective, yes. I mean, you seek out old books and you seek out information that's you know hundreds of years old to integrate it and apply it to what you're talking about today. Imagine somebody in your position a hundred years from now. They there are going to be no old books, right? There's not going to be any collected letters. There certainly won't be any, you know, collections of people's emails. Right, because it's all digital and it'll all evaporate when you don't have the latest mm-hmm. patchwork to or machine or, you know, software to extract it. You know, this is mm-hmm. what Michael's talking about. It's like this is one of the dangers of not handwriting and hand publishing things. Mm-hmm. Um, this came out in the COVID thing, actually, because a lot of the congressmen were, were handwriting notes at the beginning of this fiasco, and mm-hmm. they recognize, well, this is a this is really a great historical record because we're actually handwriting things, and mm-hmm. uh, we have documents now that can be preserved, and we can scan them and digitize them, but we have the physical holdings, and right. and this is this is a this is a, a really good point to end on is that when you do everything digital, it can all be gone in a in a in a nano flash, in a heartbeat, yeah, and it's just There's gone. Actually, you know, this is a, a funny note. Um, there was a book called How to Survive Grid Crash. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know what grid crash is, it's when the whole electronic system comes tumbling down. Um, ironically, that book was only available in a digital format. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And there's nothing like a physical book. We can talk about, you know, we, we do need to end the show, but from a neuroscience perspective, you know, 
you're using mm-hmm. your fingertips in a different way. There's more sensory input. There's a smell of a book, especially an older book. There's mm-hmm. there's a different types of if you get into older books, they're constructed differently because sometimes the edges of the pages are kind of like torn, and they're or they've got gold leaf on them, and there's mm-hmm. different types of covers and. Um, it's just a whole different reading experience, and the analog notation is so much easier, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You can star, you can draw arrows, and, and yeah, you can do all that digitally, but it's a real pain in the butt, because I've mm-hmm. had to do that with students before um, doing remote learning, and it's it's just grading a paper by hand is so much easier. you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's been a very interesting show. We got into some heavy-duty uh, content here that I would, I would project most people have never heard before, especially the specific references I made to certain books and authors. So, I hope that um, you know you guys uh, and ladies that are listening, maybe you track some of those down. I get a lot of my books on abebooks.com. Abe, like Abe Lincoln, you can buy almost anything used there for you know. I imagine since we did spend time uh, dissing technology, a lot of people will be just holding their ears and screaming la 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 la. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe someday someone will hear this 50 years from now and said, you know, those guys, <laughs> they knew what they were talking about. And we only know what we're talking about because we study history so much. And I, I look for the things that repeat over and over and over. And when I start seeing them mm-hmm. line up over and over and over again by the smartest people that I've ever read, it's probably something to note and oh, yeah. uh, and talk about with people that are willing to listen. So on that note, um, I hope you do listen. I hope you think about it. And I hope 2021, for a lot of us, is a is a um, period of creativity coming out of um, our excess forced leisure time, where we had some extra time to sit and think about life and why we're here. Michael, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll we'll continue our quest, and we'll do a, see if we can keep knocking off a show every week. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's fun. All right, more than talking about fitness. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about fitness next time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You've been listening to the Lean Bros Radio Show at theleanbraze.com. Music today provided by Van Halen. R.I.P. Eddie. Until next time, keep moving well to think well and use your leisure time wisely. Be strong to be useful. Dirty face kid in a garden